Look, if you have a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 10, which is where we are in our series in Luke. And um, we've been doing this series for quite a while. We're doing it right through this school year, looking at the book of Luke. And this is how far we've got. I just want to remind you for what was probably the last time of the context uh, of the passage that we're in. There's a section in the book of Luke. We were looking over the last few months at chapters 5 through 8 and just recognizing that they're a key chunk that comes together because it's before that Jesus starts to call disciples and then when we get to Luke chapters 9 and 10, Jesus sends those disciples out. First of all, 12 in Luke chapter 9 and then as we're looking at today, a whole 72 in Luke chapter 10 and the chapters 5 to 8 are our record of Jesus' training school to turn people from being his followers, his disciples, into people that he can send out as his ambassadors. And over the last months, we've looked at the lessons Jesus needed to teach the disciples to make that transformation, which included things like making a priority of prayer, personal holiness, and uh, regularly including new people into your community. There's more besides that, and you can listen back online to any aspects of that that you want to. This morning, we're looking at Luke chapter 10. We're going to read verses 1 to 24. And here, Jesus actually gets to sending out a whole bunch of them, and he gives further instruction to them. And what we're going to do this morning is we are going to look at that instruction, but we're also going to step back, look at the reality of the church in the UK in a sober way and ask ourselves whether the mission that we do is really working. And before we're done, there's going to be encouragement, but also a sober challenge to engage in prayer for the future of the kingdom of God in our nation. So, so that's where we're headed. Luke chapter 10. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. And he told them, the harvest is plentiful. We need to hear that, don't we? Jesus told them, the harvest It's plentiful. It's the workers who are few. So ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go! I'm sending you out like lambs amongst wolves. Don't take a purse or bag or sandals and don't greet anyone on the road. But when you enter a house, first say, Peace to this house. Now, if a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it'll return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Don't move around from house to house. 
When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God is near you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that sticks to our feet, we wipe off against you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God is near. I tell you, it will be more, more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. Jesus is there contrasting Jewish towns to whom he has gone and made things known, and who have rejected him, with towns outside of Israel. Uh, Sodom, from the story of the Old Testament, was a town that faced judgment, a town outside of God's people that faced judgment. And Jesus is explaining, as a compare and contrast to these Jewish towns, um, that looked out at the rest of the world, and looked down on the rest of the world. And Jesus said, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh. There is no room for complacency. How you respond to me now matters. Your heritage won't save you. Being Jews, he says to them, that's, that's not enough for you as you look forward to a judgment day. Verse 16, continuing his instruction to the ones he's sending out, Jesus says, he who listens to you listens to me. He who rejects you rejects me. But he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. And the 72 went out and returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And he replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At that time, I love this. This is one of my favorite verses in the scripture. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit. Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, this was for your good pleasure. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father. And no one knows who the Father is except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but didn't see it. And to hear what you hear, 
but didn't hear it. As ever, there is a huge amount in this passage and we'll only cover some of it and we'll focus on what's towards the start of it more. Uh, Before doing that, I wanted to take a step back to the big picture and ask ourselves, what does mission, because this is about, this sending out is about mission, what does mission look like in the UK today? Oh, there's that, and here we go. Uh, One thing that mission looks like is big events. So the University Christian Union had Tim Keller here from New York um, to speak in the town hall. Um, There are some great big events that are put on. We've done those kinds of events over the years, and we found a number of things as we've done so. One is that they can be really amazing. Another thing is that they're really expensive. We got to a point where we'd, we'd had people like Jonathan Aitken and Rosemary Conley and all kinds of Christian celebrities here over the years and guests were brought and that was a fine thing. What we found, we got to a point where we realized that the, the names that we would need to get in order to have any hope of it being attractive to our non-Christian friends and family, people like Bear Grylls, say, um, there's not a large number of those kinds of people, and their fees are between five and ten grand for the evening. It's kind of it's an expensive thing to do. Those churches that have invested in the put on an amazing event kind of strategy spend a very large amount of money on those events. Um, we have friends who see lots of people born again in a week by week put on a great event on a Sunday. They spent £400,000 on their PA. It's an expensive thing to do. And what we found is it's getting harder to do. It's interesting. When I had the privilege of making a decision a while ago, nearly 20 years ago, about it was 20 years ago, about who would lead a university mission, we looked around the UK to find someone that might achieve the necessary task. Now, and for the last two main events, as they're now called, the University Christian Union has had to send to America to find someone that would seem to be compelling. It's harder than it was. Of course, perhaps at the other extreme, there's me alone at work, alone missionary in my workplace with colleagues whom I love, maybe struggle with sometimes, have hopes for, but um, often as not am too preoccupied and weary to know quite what might happen there. And the truth is, we don't hear lots and lots of stories of the kingdom of God breaking out in people's workplaces as people work alone. Um, Of course, um, random acts of kindness is another very well-practiced form of Christian mission. I've done lots of it myself. I was um, reflecting the other day with Andy Longmore, who now leads the Lees Community Church, how we, with the small group that we were in together, went into South Park when there was a big festival on and gave away donuts for free 
and balloons to the kids until the people who'd actually paid to have a food stall in the festival complained to the festival organisers and kicked us out. Um, there are other things that are a little bit like this. Um, some of the... Because uh, I, don't, I don't want to be derogatory about what other people do, but the kind of, there, is a, there is a style of mission which is a bit hit and run, Let's go and give some stuff away, try and hopefully leave people with the impression that Christians are nice, um, and just hope, really. I won't say any more about that. There's another thing that we do and call mission, which is community service of one sort or another, where we care for people, provide for people, and that's not, no, not the kind that is to avoid going to prison. No, not that sort. Some of you may be doing that, but I'm unaware of it. Um, no, I mean the way in which we get out and serve people with, whether it's providing, um, uh, as, um, as Edge do so wonderfully, provide housing or um, we, there are food banks, street pastors providing flip-flops to help people get home, you know, when they've had several too many and all the rest of it. Um, those people appreciate the church for doing those things. As I've mentioned before, the, someone who was the chair of um, a school's trust that, that we are involved with through Tyndale Community School, um, she, well, she's a Labour peer now, um, she became a Christian because she, when she was chair of the Refugee Council and went around the country visiting all the things that were done for refugees, she realised that it was pretty much all being done by churches. And it made her think and realize, and it started a journey to, back to faith for her. Um, those are good things. The truth is that those things don't very often lead to people getting saved and added to the church. That Labour Peers story is great, but it's notable for its unusualness, if that's a word, its exceptional nature. Um, and then, of course, we do Alpha, which is great and is going on in the building even now. And you know, year in, year out, we've seen people born again through Alpha. I'd like to suggest that that list of five things is a pretty good summary of what we mean when we talk about mission in the UK. So we need to pause and ask, when you put all of that together, is it working? And I've got a few graphs this morning, which delights my heart. Here's the first one, although the content of them doesn't delight me quite so much. This is church attendance by different kinds of church over the last 15 years and where it's expected to go. You can read the words there. Is our mission, is the mission of the church in the UK working as we do all of those things? Uh, no. No, it's not. The church continues to decline. In fact, um, overall church attendance is in decline. It looks like the red bit at the top there, the orangey red bit, liberal churches, um, those that are less, in, less sort of um, strict in sticking to what the Bible says, um, might even disappear within our lifetime. 
uh, at the current rates. The only kinds of churches that are growing in number, the statisticians tell us, are conservative evangelical Anglican churches, like St. Ebbs, as far as Oxford's concerned, uh, and Pentecostals. Those are the only two kinds of church that are growing. Groups like New Wine are decreasing in number. Churches like ours have been stable in number for the last 20 years. I don't think we should be complacent, though. There are more statistics. One is that that 30% of young people growing up in UK evangelical churches are adopting the faith of their parents. 30% of children brought up in evangelical churches in this country are going on to adopt their parents' faith. Um, The only exception that I know to that is some research that was done by some university-based sociologists on schools that are part of the Christian Schools Trust, which is what the King's School in Whitney is part of, and they find that 70% of children going to those kinds of schools adopt their, children's, their, their, their parents' faith. But otherwise, the statistic is around 30%. That chimes with what we know as a university city that teenagers who've been at church as teenagers coming to university, that something like 80% of them um, make a choice as freshers not to join in with church life where they go. Um, Where churches are growing, it's mostly due to immigration. That's why there's so much Pentecostal growth, because Pentecostals are coming from other countries to live in the UK. Where churches, and there are some, seeing lots of people born again, there's a specific thing that can be seen which is that they've connected well with ex-churchgoers who are minded to come back to church. There's a group of people in wider society who once went to church, kind of liked it, but drifted out for one reason or another. You know, they had kids and it proved to be difficult to get there on a Sunday, or they moved house and they're never quite connected with the new place that they went to. Um, Where there are good news stories, like incredible growth in attendance at cathedral services, or even the success of Alpha, that has been where those kinds of ex-churchgoers, who still in their hearts really like church, are coming back in. The people that are flocking into cathedrals are ex-churchgoers. The statistics tell us that 70% of people doing Alpha are lapsed Anglicans and Catholics. That's who it reaches, by and large. It can reach beyond that, and it does. I'm going to show you two pie charts. And then we are going to get back. I'm going to show you two pie charts. I'm going to show you two cars. And then we're going to go back to the Bible. Okay, first pie chart. This is from 16 years ago. 
there was some, a survey done of people living in England and Wales, and they were invited to, to explain whether they were a churchgoer, whether they would in some way consider themselves attached to church, that is, maybe their kids went to the brownies group that ran in a church, or you know, through the church school they turned up at a harvest service once a year, or something like that. People, this green section, these are the people that are most likely to come to Alpha or to a guest service or to a cathedral or something. People who were churchgoers but drifted out of that. It's yellow, is it? Okay. It's green on here. Another point of division. It's very topical, though, John, this week. Color perception. Yeah, very topical. Very good. Um, And... Uh, at the bottom, there's another group of people, this is going back 16 years, who used to go to church, but they didn't drift out. They left with some kind of offense, or you know, they left deliberately. Maybe, unlike Caroline's family, they didn't see a breakthrough in the need for provision for a loved one. And you know, they took umbrage at God. Or maybe there was a falling out within the church congregation that left them really clear about the church being a damaging place rather than a place of restoration. So there's a bunch of people that actually are the hardest bunch of people to you know, invite into the love of God because they've been there and have chosen to step out. And then the, the largest group of people, this is 16 years ago, people who've never been to church at all. And for whom, therefore, the invitation to come to church is a little bit like someone inviting you to come along to their um, Tory party fundraiser. She's blue. Um, or what, you know, or it, someone inviting you to come along to their, you know, their Muslim prayer meeting or something else that's just not part of your life and never has been. Okay, fast forward. This is the most recent one of the sort of update I could find. It's something produced by Tear Fund uh, just eight years ago. They asked slightly different questions. So the, there's the regular churchgoers and the people attached to churches about the same. But they asked amongst these different groups a few other questions. What they found was that amongst people who used to go to church, there were far fewer who were open to coming back than the previous survey had done. I don't know whether that constitutes a shift or whether they maybe asked a slightly different question. What's more significant is if you add up all the rest of it, those who've never been to church but might be open to coming, it's quite a small number, those who've never been and wouldn't really think about coming, and the others are people who are other faiths and, and so on, that section is getting bigger. That's the point. The number of people who used to go to church just drifted out. And if you just gave them a shiny enough and well-designed enough invitation, would say, you know what, I think I might like to do that. That proportion of the UK population is diminishing. And the only means of mission that we've got that are really working, Alpha and those churches that really do put on a good show are reaching that diminishing group of people 
this is a big this is the big picture. It's a big deal. I don't see how we can live in an age in which church attendance and membership is going down and down and down in a way that our country hasn't seen for over a thousand years and not feel a kind of gut level. You know, what does that do to our faith? Are we, are we the rats that haven't yet learned to jump off the sinking ship? What does it do to us when society around us is turning away from the Jesus whom we know and love? So you have to ask, why does, why not just the church out there, but why do we still want to do mission in a way that doesn't work? At least not as well as it needs to. Why do we want to, what is it? So here's the cars and Jeremy Clarkson. Uh, did any of you watch this Top Gear thing in the last... I hate to thank Paul Hetler for putting me on to this. Um, you can watch this online, obviously. Top Gear, a couple of weeks ago, Jeremy Clarkson road-tested two BMWs. The one on the left is the M3. It, he described uh, it's a petrol-engine car that he described as being as good as you could hope for, really. He gave it you know, full marks, much enthusiasm. Comfortable to ride, lots of power, lots of control, um, great fuel economy, does the distance. You know, basically, he said, I think he says at one point in the program, you couldn't do better. This is the best car you could hope to have. BMW, despite being able to make that car, have spent years producing the car on the right, which is a hybrid car. It has a much smaller petrol engine, and it has an electric motor, too, as well as another electric motor that somehow helps. <laughs> I'm not an engineer. And Jeremy Clarkson drove the right-hand car, got into it, saying, you know, Toyota Prius, it's not going to be a good drive. You know, worthy idea, creating a car that is good for the environment, worthy idea, it's not going to be fun. And then drove it all the way up to Whitby and discovered on the way that it was great. It drove really well. It was actually exciting and comfortable. And he sat down eating his chips and said, I feel like a man who's only ever you know, typed on a typewriter and someone's given me a laptop. It's like a step forward. And he was sat there and given the choice of which car to drive off in, and he chose the new one. But once they got back to the studio sometime later and he had a chance to reflect, he said, I made the wrong choice. Actually, I would stick with the old one. Because when you stop, and, he said, when I stopped and thought about it, then this new car, which is called the i8, has a whole bunch of problems. It has a tiny tank, which means that you can't drive very far in it. When you need to um, charge it up with electricity, often as not, the garages either haven't got the charging point or they don't work. You can't wind the windows all the way down to put your arm out. You can't see out the back window. There's a number of basic things 
that it doesn't achieve. And he said quite clearly that M3, the old car, feels better. He knows that the new car is the future. But he still wants the old one. Because it's better. Because that technology, that engine, has had the best part of a century of refinement. And it's been made better and better and better, and now it's really good. The attempt to do something new is becoming more successful, but it's still the poorer choice. I hope I've painted that picture fairly. The point is that even when we know there is need for change, it's normal and natural for us to opt for the old because it's been refined. Most of us would prefer to take to, to, to run a bunch of guest events, carol services, that sort of a thing, that our friends might come to, even though we know most of our friends won't come, than step into a different way of doing things that just might be a breakthrough. Because whatever's new won't be refined. It won't be properly thought through, it will have glitches. And those glitches could be far worse than anything that we can see is wrong with our carol services, alpha courses, and so on. Are you, am I making sense here? I spent ages... Um, there was some enthusiasm there. Uh, I, I spent ages preparing for this. I was still preparing at half past nine this morning because I'm trying to take something that I think is a little bit academic, perhaps, but of great significance. And part of the challenge with it is we don't have all... Part of, the, part of the, the lack of refinement is we don't have the, the words for it. So I talk about this new i8 car. It's got a petrol engine. It's got, it's got another engine as well, something or other. I don't understand it. I can't even describe it to you properly. And part of the challenge with talking about mission that will lead the UK church forward for the rest of the 21st century is we struggle to even talk about it properly. When I say to you, carol service, you, you know all about that. You can judge with a, to, with a fine level of judgment the quality of different carol services. You instinctively know which kind of church would put on the kind of carol service that your particular friend might or might not come to. There's a level of mutual understanding, of refinement of judgment that means we can, we can operate that. We can do that. But we struggle to find the words for the new thing. We've tried to find words, and the phrase that we've come up with is missional community. That's, that's, that's all right. I think it's been helpful for us to describe a sort of, you know, the whole Ron Seal does what it says on the tin. It's a missional community. What do you have? You have a missional 
community. It's not just a community. No, 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 no. It's a missional community. Great. Until you get to the point where you want to start inviting people to it. Would you like to come to our missional community? No. It's glitchy. We've not got it refined. We've not got it worked out. We ought to learn, I think, in that particular regard from churches that are on the same journey in the substance of missional communities who just call them communities. Would you like to come to my community? Well, maybe. Would you like to come to our missional community? Ah, 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 no, no. No, thank you. (laughs) You do your religious thing. So, back to Luke chapter 10. Because the good thing is that God's really clever. However big the pie chart is, God is not intimidated or surprised. And it would be more worrying if we were doing exactly what Jesus said and the church was in decline. That would be more worrying than... Because what we're, we're, we're not doing what Jesus said. Most people have got shoes on this morning. There's a thing, definitely a thing about sandals in Luke 10. I'm sure... That's just, that's just like, that was an unhelpful aside, I'm sorry. But when we put on our events, when we go out with pocketfuls of cash to give to other people rather than going with empty pockets and letting them feed us. We're not doing it the way Jesus said, and we're seeing decline. So there's a great way forward, which is to pay attention to what Jesus said and to have a fresh go at doing what he said rather than what we've always known. Luke chapter 10. I'm going to rattle through this because... It's all fairly straightforward what he says, really. Key points of instruction. Number one, don't go alone. He sends them in twos. God is Trinity. The Son does not know what it is to be alone, except for a moment on the cross. The Father and the Spirit have never experienced aloneness. The minimum unit is two because God is Trinity and it's just odd in his thinking for anyone to ever attempt something by themselves when there's any choice to do it together. Don't go alone. Secondly, Jesus says the harvest is plentiful. God is At work, elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus says, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. Jesus says, I don't do anything except what I see the Father doing. There is always a harvest. Now, that doesn't mean that every room we walk into has people in it who are ready to bow the knee to Jesus. It doesn't mean that. And yet, there is always a harvest. God goes ahead and prepares people that he's drawing to him. Let me put it this way. If in Oxford, God has prepared just 1% of people 
Just one in a hundred people have already been touched by the Holy Spirit. Maybe he's given them a dream. Maybe they prayed something in a moment of crisis and were astonished to see it being answered. Maybe they just opened that Gideon's Bible whilst ne- next to the bed whilst on a work trip. Who knows? But God's prepared. If it's just one in a hundred people, then in our city, that means there's 1,500 people out there open to following Jesus. There's a harvest, and it's a plentiful harvest. The challenge is not whether there is a harvest, but rather how do we find these people? How do we find these people? Well, Jesus says, go. You won't find them in your front room. He doesn't say that. He says, go. Go out. And then there's further bits of instruction. I'm just going through things that are in the beginning of Luke chapter 10 here. He says the provision is in the harvest. You don't have to take wads of cash and dispense charity to get people to like you. Actually, you go and then they will feed you. That's really different to the way that we normally think about mission. We normally think that the churches that are best placed to do mission are the ones with the deepest pockets, who can buy the biggest PA system and employ the best graphic designer and get the best speaker in on whatever flight it takes. Jesus says, go empty-handed, and there's provision in the harvest. And this next thing requires a little bit of unpacking, because he says here, Verse 6, if a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. What he's saying is this, go, be yourself, and if people like you, knowing that you're a Christian, then this phrase, a person of peace, is is his description of that kind of a person. They like you, knowing who you are. We have another word for that in English. It's called a friend. (laughs) But there is a a serious steer to us in this. Because again, another thing that we do as Christians seeking to reach out is to hide our faith back somewhere people can't see it very easily and present ourselves with the faith bit missing they can't see that and call that thing friendship which is odd isn't it because I thought a friend was someone who liked you not someone who only liked your made-up cosmetic presentation that excludes the bit they might not like when Bev and I started going out, I was already studying science and enthusiastic about it. I could be very boring. If Bev had said to me, could you just shut up about the plants, please? Then our relationship would not have thrived. That's the truth of it. Not because I would have fallen out of love with her, but because we wouldn't have been very good friends. If she didn't like me as I am, 
It's an odd sort of friendship, isn't it? It's actually me. If, if she doesn't like me and I keep going, that's me being a charity worker towards her. Keeping going, trying to make something work, even though she doesn't like me. That's, that's like being some kind of salesperson, it seems. That's not, that's not friendship. Friendship happens when I'm open about who I am and someone still likes me. Can we show a video, please? Someone who can explain this thing about people of peace a bit better than me. Okay, um, so when I talk about persons of peace being the key evangelism strategy of Jesus, I, this is so fundamental that it's really worth spending some time on um, reflecting on your own life, within your family, your communities, because it's huge, it's huge. When we see Jesus sending out the 12 and the 72 in the Gospels, we see him talking, we, we notice him talking about, um, look for the man of peace, the person of peace, and we see particular distinctives when he sends them out um, to ahead of him to the towns there are people who are open to you who welcome you and who serve you and so i encourage um the people i'm huddling or friends to, to look around and say who in your life knows you're a believer and they welcome you they still are interested in what you say when you talk about going to church their eyes don't glaze over immediately and they don't automatically change the topic um they're open to you in a in a sense that they like hearing some of the stories about what you do or they appreciate some of the things that you're doing. They're not saying they want to become believers, but they're just there's an openness about what you're about. There's a, they're not uncomfortable. And again, often, and this is one which I've often found difficult, is that they serve you, that they want to do things for you in a particular way. Um, it may be that they, are, they really love your kids and want to help out as you go off and do some church thing. They, they want to get behind what you do. They sometimes might want to contribute to, um, if you're doing something for Habitat for Humanity or um, wanting to take some stuff to an orphanage. They're like, look, let me bring some stuff that can help out. I've noticed this over the years that people are looking for opportunities to get involved in something good. And... Um, that's been a great way for identifying people at peace. Um, so I, I tend to look at just my ordinary everyday life. My hairdressers um, are often people at peace. I'm really glad because otherwise it, it's, anyway, it's not a good thing. But um, they're people who often are welcome. They want to talk with you. They want to listen to you. Not, and not every hairdresser I've had is a person of peace. But the ones that are have been weeping as they've done my hair. <laughs> um, as we've talked together, uh, I often find that the person of peace in, at now for us as young families may be one of the kids, one of our children's friends. Um, and it, there may be someone who they, they always want to do play dates and they're like the, these kids are like a gatekeeper to an entire family. And we see that in the in Acts with Lydia when Paul, um, Paul reaches out to Lydia and Lydia's like, OK, if you if you kind of trust me and stuff, come and stay at our house. Come and be part of what we're doing. I cannot count the amount of times when a child has invited my daughter or one of my daughters into our house and has been a gatekeeper for an entire family where we have ended up praying with a parent, ministering to a parent in some way, serving in some way, um, getting to know that entire family in some way and sharing the gospel because they were someone who was open to us, who welcomed us and served in some way. And so I just encourage people to look at your everyday life. Um, who do you 
do sport with? Who do you watch the game with? Who's in your kid's life? For those of you who have children or have nieces and nephews who are part of your, your regular life, who, um, what are the kids that just all won't go away? <laughs> and the families who, who want to help you in some way. And um, you're so busy trying to present Christians who serve, you forget someone's trying to serve you. Look at those people. Um, who serves you at Starbucks or wherever you go? And, um, and ask yourself again if they're a person of peace. If you don't have a person of peace, you need to get out more. Get a, get a sport. Get a hobby. <laughs> okay. Fine. People of peace, stay and eat with them, Jesus says. Then, then heal the sick. Note where that comes. Comes after the meal. Comes after having eaten together. And then talk about the kingdom. Now, I'm aware this can all sound really kind of complicated. There's lots of bits here. And one of the things that's been keeping me awake at night is trying to find a way of making this a a little bit simpler. And I hope I've achieved it in saying this, that there are several distinct things Jesus says. One is about having our eyes open to see who is it that God uh, is already drawing to him and learning that you can tell that in large measure by when you're open about who you are, As Joe Saxton there said in the video, their eyes don't glaze over, they don't change the subject. That is, they actually are interested in you and all that you are, including your faith. Then find those people. And having eyes open to see those people. Open eyes, an open house. Whether you're in their house or they're in your house, actually sharing life together spending time often around the meal table maybe if you've got small kids down the park or if you uh, haven't got small kids who are really helpful with lots of you know, ice breaking then uh, you probably don't go to the park maybe you do you may go to the pub instead whatever it might be there are places where you can share life um, but in the home is ideal And it's after that, we use this phrase sometimes, don't we, in open heaven, this sense of like, we know that the kingdom of God is near. We know that uh, we can just sort of reach out and touch the power and the grace of God and we can pray for healing and we can see God's kingdom come. We use that phrase, open heaven. It comes in Jesus' instruction after we've done the eyes open to the people and we've done the sharing of life, open house. So open eyes, open house open heaven. Uh, Six years ago, or six years ago, we in OCC recognized that neither our Sunday meetings nor our midweek groups were shaped around people of peace. What we had was a fixed product. What we do on Sundays was a fixed product And what we did in our community groups was a fixed product that we tried to tweak up a bit in the direction of being friendly to these, our genuine friends, our people of peace. But it wasn't working. It was a bit like someone taking that old BMW, the M3, and trying to make its two point whatever it was litre petrol engine more environmentally friendly by streamlining the car a bit. 
And that's why we set out to have what we've called missional communities. We've sought to create building blocks in our church life that would be shaped around the people that God was leading us to reach. That there would be something in our church life that is shaped around the people that God is leading us to reach rather than only ever inviting other people onto our turf. That's why we've done it. Um, But I need to be honest about those missional communities because the truth is that they have not yet led to a great harvest either. I would love to be able to produce that graph of decline and go, but you know what, there's this bit here, it's turning up because people have, there are churches everywhere picked up about people of peace and it's all kicking off and it's all happening and we're part of it. I don't think we're there yet. We've not yet got the, the BMW hybrid. We, we're more like still the Toyota Prius first attempt hybrid. It's a good thing and the future lies in it, but we have a way to go. We have our glitches. As I've already said, calling our outward-facing part of our church family mission or community was hardly super smart when it's the thing that we're trying to invite people into. And we're still not very good at explaining all of this to people who visit us on a Sunday. And again and again, I find that people visit us on a Sunday and go away basically with a message that we don't run decent small groups. That that's the distinctive about us as a church. Because we're not communicating well what that's about. There are people who miss the kind of room of a good weekly Bible study. Because that's not all we do. It's in the mix, but it's not all we do. Um, Our video production values aren't as high as some other churches. And that lack of investment in style is a bother to some. People will attend different churches and see which are more stylish. And we've been investing our creative energies in trying to re-engineer the outward-facing part of our lives and I think have become gradually less stylish in our printed materials and our videos and those kinds of things because it's not been the focus. That can be a bother to some people. Okay, there are a few prophetic words we need to hear. I'm finishing by saying this connects with all that we said about fasting. Nearly said fasting. I can't do it consciously. Um, because each of these things, having our, having our eyes open to see who the people are that are people of peace in our lives, having our eyes open to that is a breakthrough. If they're there, true friends around us, if they're there and we're not seeing them, that's a breakthrough to see them. Having found those people, actually starting to share life, have an open house, them in your lives, you in their lives, that's another breakthrough. It doesn't just happen. And then, of course, the miracles of healing and the talk of the kingdom is another 
breakthrough. These things all can be a focus for prayer. And I'd just like to um, prompt you to say, if you are going to take up the challenge of fasting in some way, does it attach to one of these three things? Could you fast and pray that God would open your eyes to see? See what he's doing, see who he's touching. Could you fast and pray that God would show you some really concrete next steps to get those people that you just know he's touching to share life? And if you've got people that are in that position, they may actually be family members already in that position. Fast and pray for an open heaven, for some kind of miracle that will turn things around. Um, I'm uh, fasting as of this morning for a while. Um, I'm not ill if you see me over the coming weeks getting thinner. It's okay. Last time I did a longer fast, people asked me if I had cancer. (laughs) Anyway, um, the last time I did this thing was about um, getting on 10 years ago. And for me, the problem was actually back beyond this, I was in the situation that Jo mentioned right at the end of her video, didn't actually have any contact with, meaningful contact with people who weren't Christians. It wasn't that, I mean, I was a a step back from open eyes. And I fasted then, I fasted for three weeks, and at the end of that, for the only time in my life, I heard what really, I couldn't just... hesitant to say it was an audible voice from God but I couldn't tell you I mean it sounded like a voice speaking to me so I mean I guess that's what that is isn't it and God said to me then go volunteer for the citizens advice bureau some of you know this story and I began to spend a regular part of my life around people I wish then 10 years ago I'd known that the next battle to fight was to pray to have some open eyes And that then there was another battle to fight, to share. I wish I'd known that. I didn't know that 10 years ago, so I did my long fasting, got into the Citizens Advice Bureau, volunteered, did a load of good stuff, but never found any people of peace. Had the occasional person say to me things like, goodness, I see from your aura you are a spiritual person. Tell me what you like. (laughs) That was nice. That was a good experience. Um, But never found any people that I could go on to share life with through that so maybe that actually you are in the situation that joe described and that i was you've got no mates you can fast and pray because whatever the reasons that are for that god can break through so pick one of those things the three i've got on this on the powerpoint or another one and then dan is going to corral the prophets and we'll see what happens